It is good to be here. It feels like coming home. It's been a while. I don't remember how long it's been, but I think the last time I was here, I was headed to um, Loma Linda University Church. So I spent a couple of years at Loma Linda University Church as the children's pastor. And then I received an invitation to go to Azure Hills, which is where Dante is and was at the time. And so I accepted that invitation. So how cool is that, that we get to work together in ministry full time and we've just had such a good time doing that. In addition to that, I think that um, when Dante was still here, um, when we were still here, Dante started working in fire chaplaincy. Um, so uh, as time has gone by and I've been involved with him a little bit on the sidelines, now I am full, fully involved now as a fire chaplain alongside with him for the Riverside County Fire Department. And the very cool, yeah, Richard. <laughs> and usually um, when we get called out to an incident, it's because something pretty bad has happened and they need chaplains. Um, and what I've discovered as we live in the drama of people's lives, of young people and children and out in the community involved in fire chaplaincy, what I've discovered is that um, we come back with many stories. And there is such power in the stories that, that you come back with and are able to share that um, I started to think about the power of story and the fact that uh, I discovered that, you know, not only children love a good story, but so do adults. Oftentimes, one of my duties at Loma Linda University Church was to plan out the children's features, and they televise through LLBN. Uh, so frequently, I would get emails from different parts of the world, which was very interesting. And mostly, they were uh, from adults who loved the stories. I got emails from France, and I actually got one from Saudi Arabia, which was kind of interesting. But as we come back from a call with the fire department, usually we come back with a tough story. Recently, we were called out on an incident uh, where we arrived at the emergency room and there was a mom and a dad and a 12-year-old boy and then they had their 20-year-old in the hospital bed. The 20-year-old and the 19-year-old brother had been in a car with a friend the car flipped over, and the other brother passed away. So while we were in the emergency room, um, fire crews were trying to extricate the deceased brother. He was still trapped, and mom and dad had to come back to the emergency room with the injured son and their little guy. And that's what we walked into. And nine times out of ten, when we are all done with it and have been talking to uh, police, CHP or sheriff, whoever is there, we find out that drugs and alcohol are usually contributing factors. And we end up with these stories that, um, where you see parents hurting, parents with a big hole in their heart. And there's nothing you can do but to be a ministry of presence. There's absolutely nothing you can say, nothing you can do at that moment in time that's going to make anything different or better at that time.
But simply just being a presence is of help, of some kind of help. But we come back with these stories to share with our young people, with our kids. And I now understand, I had heard stories about firefighters, and probably Richard knows about this better than than I do, but I had this urge to walk into my kid's bedroom. It was like 2, 3 in the morning by the time we got home. It was a Saturday night. But I had to see them sleeping in their bed. And I heard stories about firefighters who, after an incident involving kids like that, have to call home, have to check on their kids. And I had this urge to go check and make sure that my kids were okay. There's nothing more captivating than a powerful story, a well-told story. And telling stories is the best way to teach, to persuade, and to even understand ourselves. The very act of sharing a story can change a life, can change the world. The need for story is embedded deep in our brains. Oftentimes we see these or hear of these wonderful stories that are prepared for the big screen. And the reality is that stories are not just for mere entertainment. Stories are so powerful They capture the human imagination, and they're probably the best way of packaging information. Stories, unlike straight-up information, change us because they directly involve us in what's going on, in the telling of the story. We get to be part of that inner circle, that protagonist's inner circle. You get a sense of the emotion and what is being felt. Well, I want to tell you this morning that the Bible is a story. It's a powerful story. It describes people's lives. It tells us about their journey through life. It shares their experiences, the joys, the victories, but it also tells us about their struggles. It's a story that tells us about their loss and their sorrow about their regrets, and about their poor choices. The Bible is also a story about God, a God who is continually telling his people, you are special, you're chosen. It's a story about a God who keeps reminding his people that they're worth it, that they're significant, and that they're valuable. It's a story about a God who hears the cries of his people and he frees them, he liberates them, he stands by their side, he provides for them, he gives them great wealth and abundance, he tells them with actions that they're special, that they're beautiful, that we are beautiful and that we are significant that we're worth so much. He tells us that we are his, that we are the people who will reflect his character, his character to the world, that we are the people who will love others and who will be there for others, who will offer hope to the hopeless. But you see, the Bible is also a story about a chosen people who struggle to believe. It's a story about a people who struggle to believe that they are all these amazing and wonderful things that God says that they are. 
It's a story about a people who aren't quite sure that they have been liberated, that they have been protected and deeply and passionately loved. It's a story about a people who doubt. And it's the people of biblical times, the people of old, who didn't believe them, believe him, but oftentimes the people today. We, this people, us, we also doubt. We also struggle for some reason to believe to believe that we are all these amazing things that God thinks of us. We struggle to believe that we are wonderfully and fearfully made. And some of the evidence is in the statistics. And I'd like to share a little bit this morning some of these statistics that reflect current thought and behavior. And these statistics are taken not only from the Christian world, because we, it's the same across the board, Christian evangelicals and non-Christians alike. So let me just tell you what happened here. Dove, one of the largest international beauty brands, decided to commission a study, and they called it the Real Truth About Beauty Study. And the objective of this study was to further the global understanding of women, beauty, and well-being and the relationship between these. So Dove recruited researchers from Harvard and from this London School of Economics. And the study had its genesis in a growing concern that portrayals of female beauty in popular culture were helping to perpetuate an image of beauty that was neither attainable nor was it authentic. Dove was concerned that this limited portrayal of beauty was preventing women from recognizing and enjoying beauty in themselves and others. And since beauty in today's society is so highly valued, they wanted to see what kind of impact this situation had on well-being, on happiness, on self-esteem. So Dove's mission in commissioning the real truth about beauty study was to explore empirically what beauty means to women today. So let me share a few statistics. I'm going to start off by sharing some statistics about teenagers, and then I'm going to share stats about women. And since I knew there would be men today in the congregation, thankfully, I have a couple statistics for you too so that you don't feel left out. All right. But listen, God is telling us, I love you passionately. You're beautiful. You're, you're everything to me. And this is what we think, current society today. Seven in ten girls believe that they are not good enough or don't measure up in some way. A girl's self-esteem is more strongly related to how she views her own body shape and body weight than how much she actually weighs. Teen girls have a negative view of them. Teen girls that have a negative view of themselves are four times more likely to take part in activities with boys that they end up regretting later. 75% of girls with low self-esteem reported engaging in negative activities like cutting, bullying, drinking, smoking, and disordered eating. All right. And Dove research is still showing us 
that it's important to address girls' anxiety about looks as there is a universal increase in beauty pressure and a decrease in girls' confidence as they grow older and become women. So, women. 4% of women around the world consider themselves beautiful. And this is an increase of 2% from the last time they did these statistics that they did this research in 2004. Only 11% of girls globally are comfortable using the word beautiful to describe themselves. 72% of girls feel tremendous pressure to be beautiful. And 80% of women agree that every woman has something about her that is beautiful, but they do not see their own beauty. And more than half, 54% of women globally, agree that when it comes to how they look, they are their own worst beauty critic. And guys, are you ready for this? For the men? Here we go. Only 28% of American men think they are handsome. So how many men at the Orange Church think they are handsome? I think, come on, raise your hand. I think you guys are all handsome. You are beautiful. All right, 94% of men, of American men, would change something about their looks if they could. 94%. And the big question, the huge question, is why? Why do we have such a hard time believing God when he says we're beautiful, we're special, we're chosen, and he's calling us to the most amazing journey, to the most amazing adventure in life. Why do we doubt? Why do we struggle to believe? And as I think a little bit about this question, I want you to kind of ponder this question a little bit. I want to take us to the Bible, and we'll briefly look at a couple of stories this morning. I am so intrigued when I started to read this story. I was so intrigued and curious about this woman that we really don't talk much about. But how I wish I could have met her. Because she sounds like she must have been an amazing girl who grew up to become an awesome woman. And if you want to read about her in detail, I invite you to read Judges chapters 4, 5, and 6. But for this morning, allow me to just tell you the story. Deborah. I want to talk about Deborah. She was a prophet of God, the God of Israel. And think about this. This is biblical times. This is during a time when women had no value. Women were actually, I don't even know if they made it to second-class citizens. They weren't considered of, to be of any great import to society. Women and children, they weren't even counted. So here is a woman. She's the fourth judge, pre-monarchic judge of Israel. So first we had judges, and then came the kings later on. In fact, she's the only female judge mentioned in the Bible. And here are her qualifications. She was a judge. Obviously, she was, she was a judge because she was a leader. And she was there to settle people's disputes. 
She was a counselor. She was a prophet. God spoke to her. She was a military warrior and a wife. How does that look like? What does that look like on a job description or on a resume? Isn't that like awesome? Military warrior, wife, prophet, judge, leader. But guess what? God picked her. And he put her in that position at that time, at that place, for a reason. Who cares what anybody else had to say? Others' opinion didn't matter. God placed her there for a purpose, for a reason. And she had a job to do. So the people of Israel at that time, during her leadership, during her judgeship, The people of Israel at that time had pretty much let God know with their actions and their behavior that they didn't believe God. They were letting God know with their behavior that they were not his special, chosen, beautiful, awesome people. Because the Bible says that the people of Israel at that time did evil in the sight of God. And when you don't feel like that one God, that God is calling you as a special person, as a special individual, you tend to not care what he says, not pay attention to his opinion. So you go off on your own doing your own thing. And usually what results is what happened to the people of Israel. They were doing evil in the sight of God. And it took them 20 years to wake up. The Bible says that they were under the rigid, oppressive heel of a Canaanite king, a king named Jabin, and his military commander, Sisera. But the people didn't wake up and cry out to God. Twenty years had to go by before that happened. And Deborah was a judge during that time. And she rose up and said, enough, enough. And here her behavior cries out to the world. It speaks volumes about who she is and what she believes. And the fact that she does believe the God of Israel. She believes that she was chosen. She believes that she is special. And she believes that she is called by God. Because she rises up to incite a rebellion. And so she calls on her military commander. So King Jabin, the the Canaanite king, had his guy. And Deborah and the people of Israel called on Barak. Not Obama, but his name was Barak. And so she calls on Barak and she tells them the plan. She says, you're going to go up to that mountain at that northern angle that faces this plain. And by the way, it was interesting because military battles of old were often fought that way, where opposing sides would kind of face each other off on, different, on, on opposite ridges or on hills, and then there was usually a plain or a valley in between. So Deborah calls on Barak and says, hey, Get the troops ready. Get the man of two clans ready, and you're going to go up to this mountain. And I love this part of the story. This story answers that huge question. You see, the people of Israel had trouble believing God when he said they were special. Deborah here is different. She tells God with her behavior that she believes. 
But I need you to hear this, if this is the only thing that sticks from this morning. Because her attitude, her attitude is key. She is empowered by what she believes. Deborah is empowered by what she believes. And this is what I want you to remember. You can only truly believe when you are in relationship. You can only truly believe when you are in relationship with your God. Deborah had, Deborah was tight with God. He talked to her and she talked to him. I don't know about the people of Israel, but she was in relationship with her God. And the rest of the story is that Barak has to go out and get 10,000 troops and put him on this mountain, Mount Tabor, at the northern angle of the plain. And while she while he was busy doing that, her plan was that then she would lure the other commander, the opposing military commander, Sisera, and bring him down into the valley. But Judges 4, chapter 4, verse 8, says that Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. I have a feeling that Barak knew He knew that there was something special about Deborah. And maybe, just maybe, it was something that he wished he had and didn't have. But he saw it in Deborah. And he felt that he couldn't go do his duty as commander, as military leader, unless this woman went with him. And I have to admit that I like her answer. She tells him, okay. Sure, I'll go with you. Verse 9 says, Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak. That is so cool. Really, the honor and glory belong to God, first and foremost. So the Canaanite army advanced. But let me tell you a little bit about the Canaanite army. These guys were tough. They were strong. History tells us that they had 900 iron chariots. These guys were well-trained. They were ready for battle. Not quite sure how ready Israel was. But you know, God was with them the way he had always been with them. And today, the Canaanite army advanced to the attack. And Deborah says to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And they went to battle. It was a bloody battle. It was a terrible battle. Based on what we know in history, it appears that God just sent a tremendous rainfall, an incredible amount of rain that basically rendered the Canaanite army just totally defenseless because their chariots got caught in the mud. Every single Canaanite man was killed, and the only one that fled was Sisera. He got off of his chariot, says the Bible, and he fled on foot. And I told this story one time, 
at a devotion with junior high girls because there's a gory part, a gory end to the story that I figured I would spare them. And I've debated whether I want to spare you from the gory details of the story. But my hunch is that because we love good stories, and sometimes we even like to hear the gory part of the story, that I should probably share the gory part of the story with you. And the ugly part of the story, if you haven't read it before in the Bible, I encourage you to read it, is that this guy, Sisera, gets off his chariot and he flees on foot. Well, there's this woman whose husband had set up tent in the northern camp where usually her people would set up in the southern camp, but they wanted to be different. And her name was Jael. Her husband had some kind of a peace alliance or treaty with the Canaanite king. So Sisera went in the direction of her tent, and she met him outside of her tent and offered him hospitality. So she invited him into his, her tent. It's interesting, though, that in ancient times, a man should not go into a tent if the husband wasn't there. But Sisera was in a big hurry. He was fleeing. So he comes into the tent, and he's exhausted from being on the battlefield. And Jael, she's being hospitable, we think. She's an interesting character. I don't know what if, she, if we analyzed psychologically you know, who she was, what we would come up with. But she offers him a blanket. And so he probably feels welcomed. And then he is thirsty, so he asks for something to drink. And rather than give him water, he asks for water. She gives him a skin of milk. And then he falls asleep. And he tells her, if someone comes looking for me, you tell him, I am not here. So he falls asleep, and this woman, Jael, takes a tent nail or a tent peg, and she drives it through this sleeping man's temple and into the ground. It's in the Bible. (laughs) And I just had to pause there, because then Barak comes running looking for the opposing military commander because he's out to kill him. And Jael is waiting for him and says, come, welcomes him into the tent and says, is this the man you were looking for? And he walks in to find this opposing military commander, job done, he's done, the war is over, basically. The Bible tells us that the army of Israel had a victory that day. Very interesting. But I look at the life of Deborah and her leadership and the fact that she was a judge and a prophet. And all of this cries out to me. And it tells me about her relationship. And the fact that she could boldly lead this campaign the way she did only says that she believed God, that she believed that she was special and chosen and called by God. Let me shift gears a little bit and share another story just briefly that I would like for you to look at from a bit of a different perspective, okay? 
And, and bear with me here. I'm going to tell you the story, girls, of a cute guy in the Bible. The Bible says he was good-looking. David was a handsome boy. And I'm going to share with you the story of David and Goliath, but from a slightly different perspective. You see, we sing this cute song for the kids, you know, only a boy named David, only a little sling. And we sing this song, and we portray David as the underdog. We portray him as though his defeat against Goliath is such a surprise. And that the only, exclusively the only way that he won was because God intervened. Because he was just a helpless little boy who was out to lose this battle against Goliath. Um, He was going to lose because he was young. He had nothing but a sling, a little sling. He was going to lose because he had no military armor. He had no sword. He had no shield. In fact, he refused all of that. And God miraculously steps in at that moment to help this little kid. David comes out the winner, and this was an improbable victory. But the reality is that, yes, David was going to win no matter what. But David was going to win because he believed God. He believed God when God said, you're special, you're chosen, I have a job for you to do, I have a plan. See, David never walked alone. He always walked with God. He was in relationship with him. He was a shepherd, but he had this special bond with God. And when you read the story of David, when he arrives at the battlefield, isn't it odd to you when you read the Bible that he seems so confident when he gets there? He sees that Goliath is hurling all these insults against the God of Israel, and he says, what? What is going on here? Why? And how, why are you doing absolutely nothing at all? They are, everyone is paralyzed by fear. And David shows up, and he almost seems a little cocky. It's like, I'll take this guy. They offer him armor, and he's like, no. The Bible says that David says, I've never proved it. He never tried it on, and, and this was foreign to him. And he was used to a different way of doing battle, of going to battle. David had a sling. Not many people realize that a sling was an amazing weapon. It was an amazing weapon of war, and in some respects, it was more effective than a bow and arrow. It was used in Europe, and in the Near East from the Bronze Age until about the 17th century. In contemporary sketches, they depict the battlefield and they show the slingers in front of the archers as as campaigns, as military campaigns are going into battle. The sling was a major part of the fighting force of the day. And through the ages, it was held in very high regard by the Mesopotamians, the Greeks, the Romans. And a slinger in biblical times was someone with his leather pouch and a rock. But when that rock was placed in that pouch and this projectile whirled around at about six or seven rotations per second, and it was launched towards its target, 
It had killing power. It's interesting that the sling back then was considered a formidable weapon. The rock is released, and they, they calculate that at six to seven rotations per second, a rock that's released is going about 35 meters per second. That is fast. The bottom line is that ballistics calculations on stopping power show that a rock coming out of a sling had the stopping power of, of a 45-millimeter handgun. Besides, slingers had amazing target accuracy. They could kill birds in flight at about 200 feet away. Time and time again, slingers were the decisive win in wars. And although David is best known, is the best known slinger in the Bible, he's not the only one. Judges 20, we read that 700 specially chosen men from the clan of Benjamin could all sling accurately to within the width of a hair. That is amazing, something that many infantrymen can't do today with a modern rifle. Something that is incredible about slings, it's, I couldn't believe it, that David, David had his special, when he was king, he had his special sling corps, and these men were required to be ambidextrous throwers. First Kings tells us about, oh no, I'm sorry, it's in Chronicles. Well, First King tells us about David's special sling corps, but, first, but uh, Chronicles tells us about Israeli slingers playing a decisive role in the war against the Moabites. It is incredible. The reality is that Goliath didn't stand a chance. Goliath was a big, huge, clumsy giant. And if you look at scripture, it says, okay, he was wearing all this armor, which probably weighed him down. It was about 100 pounds of armor that he had on. So he was probably even clumsier. And the Bible says that he had an attendant walk him down to the valley. So people like Goliath in battle, they were ready to do hand-to-hand combat. So David would have had to be like within two feet of Goliath for anything to happen. But David wasn't dumb. He had an amazing weapon. And the other thing is that God was with him. The most important thing, God was with him. So when David shows up to the battlefield, it's like, what? What are you guys waiting for? Why are we standing here allowing this giant to insult the God of Israel? What's wrong with you people? His attitude, his behavior cried out and said, I believe, I believe that I am called by God, that I'm special, that I have worth, that the army of Israel has worth, but you don't believe and you're allowing this guy to insult our God. What you believe about what God thinks of you and your ability to come out victorious in life depends entirely on relationship, on your relationship with God. You see, a random stranger can come and tell you, hey, 
you're important and you're special and I'm going to take care of you. Do you believe that? Would you believe that? Some random person just comes and tells you this? I don't think I would believe. I'd have a hard time with that. But if my husband Dante says, I'm going to take care of you. We're going to spend the rest of our lives together and I'm going to take care of you because I love you, you're special, and you're beautiful. Well, I believe. I believe him because we have a relationship. And when we have a relationship with our God, everything changes. What we think of ourselves, how you perceive yourself, is radically different than what society tells you you should believe. You see, you can tell me that you believe in God and that you know about God, but the bigger, better, and more meaningful question is, are you in relationship with your God? Do you talk to him? Do you listen to him? Do you go running into his arms when life throws stuff at you that just leaves you spinning? Do you believe him? Do you check in with him when you need advice? Do you fight with him? Do you ask him the hard questions? You know, fighting is not necessarily always a bad thing. It means you're in a relationship. And I don't always agree with God. We have our disagreements, but he's my God. And I feel totally comfortable asking him those hard questions and saying, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. But you're still my God. And I love you. And we believe you. Society tells us all kinds of things, all kinds of lies about how women and girls and even men should look and that that makes you acceptable and that that makes you okay. And as long as we keep believing those lies and as long as we continue with our lives, our behavior, our actions to tell God that we aren't sure that we believe him, and that we're not really sure that we're special and that we're loved, and that we're not sure that we're his people and that we're beautiful and valuable and worth so much, as long as we keep traveling that same self-destructive road, we continue to incapacitate ourselves. We render ourselves incapable of being God's agents of hope and grace to a world in need. We render ourselves incapable of being the tangible hands and feet of God in a world who desperately needs to see in us the character of God. God wants to use our lives for great things and to take us on an incredible and an amazing journey through life. He wants you, the original you. He wants you to be you, women of the Orange Church. He wants you to be you. He wants you to be comfortable in your own skin. 
He wants you to know that you are special, that you are significant, that you are passionately loved, and that you're worth so much. There's a story of a pastor who was walking the streets of a little town in, in the area of Hong Kong. And he came upon a tattoo studio. And in the window were displayed samples of tattoos that were available that you could put on your body. And the tattoos that were on display were those of an anchor and butterflies and a mermaid. But he paused because he saw a tattoo there that said, born to lose. And he thought, really? Would someone put this on their body, on their skin? So he walks into the tattoo studio and talks to the Chinese tattoo artist. And he says, does, does anyone really have this horrible phrase, born to lose, tattooed on his body? And the Chinese man replied, yes, sometimes. And the pastor said, well, who in their right mind would have this tattoo put on their body? And the Chinese man in, in broken English looked at the pastor and tapped his forehead and said, before tattoo on body, tattoo on mind. What you believe up here makes such a difference. God's kingdom contains a different benchmark for what makes a person beautiful and special and significant. And I believe that it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out and helping us to believe, to believe and to reflect the amazing glory of Christ. And it's this glory of Christ that will grow us in simple beauty and grace. There's no better makeover than the presence of Christ in our lives. There is no better makeover, men, than the presence of Christ in our lives. The power of Christ working in our lives is amazing. That power that helps us grow day by day to believe, to believe God when he says, you are special, you are all beautiful, and you are deeply and passionately loved. As the deaconesses come forward, I'd like to thank Pastor Patty. Ladies, do you feel impassioned? Do you realize how beautiful you are in the sight of God? Men, you're beautiful also. We are wondrously made in the image of God. How can we refute that? We don't need tattoos to remind us of our beauty, of our, our relationship with the Lord. May we each have that, that special relationship that reminds us that God loves us. And nothing that anybody can say or do can change that. Our tithes and offerings is for local, our offerings for a local church budget. As the deaconesses stand, may we have prayer. 
Father, we thank you that we are at this point of our service, Lord, that we can all participate. We can bring the tithes and offerings into your storehouse. We pray that you will bless the givers, Lord, as they give with a cheerful heart. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, not only with our lives, with our finances. And we know, Lord, that you will lead us down the road that leads to your, leads to your kingdom. Use these offerings and tithes, Lord, to widen your kingdom that others may know of you. We pray in your name. Amen. We'll close our worship service this morning with hymn number 206, Face to Face. And would you please stand?
Let's pray together. God of grace, we are so grateful for your presence in this place on this beautiful Sabbath morning. Lord, and today we want only to hear your voice speaking to our heart, Lord. Help us to believe that you love us, that we are special. Help us to believe so that we may be instruments in your hands, that we may be agents of grace and mercy and compassion to a world in need. Equip us, Lord, so that we may work alongside you, that we may share a love that the world doesn't understand, that we may share compassion that is so desperately needed. Dear God, we may, may we be people of grace and forgiveness. Thank you, Father, for your incredible love, for your mercy, and for hearing us and being with us today. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.